Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. Happy holidays. And I hope you're finding some time off with family and friends this holiday season. We have a bonus episode for you today. And as we do on holidays, we reach back and share with you one of the more popular episodes of the past 12 months. And on today's show, we will feature once more Andreas Schollmeyer, CFO of Best Choice Company, which is a, a pet's health and wellness uh, e-commerce uh, company, I believe. I think you'll enjoy hearing about Andreas's career roots. He, it's a fascinating career-building story that he has, and uh, you're left with little doubt that uh, Better Choice Company has made a, a very wise and experienced uh, choice when it comes uh, to hiring a CFO. Our episode begins now. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Andreas Schollmeyer, CFO of Better Choice, a pet health and wellness company. Years from now, when business historians seek to track the developments that shaped industry during the first half of the 21st century, they may want to take a look back at Andreas Schollmeyer's finance career. From CFO of Pepsi China to CFO of Walmart e-commerce, to L Brands. Schulmeyer has marched in step with many of the seismic business developments that are today redefining industries. Our interview with Andreas begins after this. It's a question every growing business must answer. How do you scale your organization to accommodate growth while reducing risk. With Sage Intact, you get the instant visibility into deep operational and financial details that inform decision-making when scale is top of mind. By automating error-prone manual tasks and allowing your accounting and finance team to focus on analysis of accurate information, Sage Intact provides the visibility required to confidently scale your organization. Sage Intact is the only AI CPA preferred provider of cloud financial management software. question where we just ask you what were the experiences you feel prepared you for a CFO role what comes to mind when you really look back and again you've had so many so many different uh, experiences in the finance realm but when you think back what were those experiences you feel prepared you for a finance leadership role yeah Jack is when I started off in my consulting career I worked in a variety of different opportunities and I really looked at that part as a postgraduate education and what really intrigued me while working as a consultant was really looking into how you could measure and identify a company's performance just based on the financials right I'm an engineer by training so I've always loved the idea of identifying problems and fixing them and the numbers in a company were always the best and cleanest indicators for me to work with. So early on in my consulting days, I figured that I would end up in a more finance-oriented role once I moved out to industry. And because I did join PepsiCo as my first company outside of consulting, it, PepsiCo is known as a great finance talent school. So within the PepsiCo team, I ended up joining the finance team after a couple of years in some of their corporate consulting and M&A school. hope you'll uh, permit me to mention, uh, and I do think it's worthy of mention, that uh, your tour of duty as a consultant was with the Boston Consulting Group. 
and you had studied uh, engineering at MIT before uh, returning to the management school. And um, it's not uh, – we've seen this before where sort of an engineering-minded student segues into finance. But what, what brought you to the uh, management school at MIT? Um, it was an interesting kind of transition that I went through. Um, I was actually in the Ph.D. program at MIT, but noticed that I was paying more attention to the back of the industrial magazines, which talked about the business applications of the technology, rather than the front part, which talked about engineering. So once I started reading Aviation Week and Space Technology kind of backwards, I noticed that my interest was somewhere else. And one of the great school things about being at a school like MIT, the transition from the engineering school over to the business school was actually relatively easy because the school does really reinforce that you should be here to learn what you are interested in. So having that support from the school on moving from the engineering side over to the business side was actually very helpful in getting me into that direction and then starting to identify what I wanted to do once I got into the business side. Right. And I want to I also point out that as you uh, entered the workforce, uh, Boston Consulting Group, you were there a number of years. What was the uh, nature of the work you were involved with there? Yeah, so I, I came into BCG because for me it was a little bit of a postgraduate edu education, I think, as I mentioned before, um, because I'd been in engineering all the way through business school. I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to end up in the business side. So it was very great to kind of be in a business where I got to work with different companies. I spent a lot of time in the telecommunications industry. Back then it was setting up initial cell phone businesses. It was around video conferencing. But I also spent time in a nuclear power plant. I worked with some con emerging consumer products. Uh, so way back then I had an assignment in paper, which with printers and with computer business really starting up was becoming a home and consumer business. And I found that putting together my technology experience with consumer business is what I wanted to do. So when PepsiCo called, I saw that as a great transition and said, hey, this is going to be perfect. I'll spend two years with PepsiCo, start to understand consumer goods, figure out what to do, and then I'll go back into my technology business. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, I ended up spending 12 years with PepsiCo because there were just so many exciting assignments that they had for me that it was a fascinating place to be and continue to build my career with them. So I think you, you brought us up to Pepsi, really, and I want to ask you about that. You spent a, a block of time there. Uh, you land, finally, a CFO of uh, the beverages group in China. But tell us, uh, tell us about your career at, at Pepsi, where it began and where it led. Um, yeah, so it, I went into what was then the corporate strategy group. Um, it was led by Indra Nui, who became the CEO of PepsiCo a few years later. Um, that group really looked at the corporate performance overall of what PepsiCo does and where it should be. So we looked at everything from where we should be investing in our money, what are the categories that are going to be successful going forward, which companies should we acquire because the M&A team was part of that as well. So I had spent some time while I was still at the corporate strategy group of looking at the takeaways acquisition. Does Gatorade fit into the portfolio? What do we do with the restaurants? How do we spin them off? So a lot of these discussions went quickly from strategy to finance. So a lot of it ended up being fi building financial models and figuring out whether strategically it made sense and then financially how we could make that work. So. One of the pieces, obviously, was going through and developing these models, and that's how I ended up out in the field. Um, we had spun off the Yum! business, the restaurants, from PepsiCo, and at that point there were effectively too many people at the corporate headquarters since we just lobbed off one third of the business. So they asked us to raise their hand depending on where we wanted to go, um, and I raised my hand to go overseas. About a three days later, they told me I'm going to China to help build the snack food business in China. And that was really because it was undergoing some radical changes, and they wanted somebody there to understand from a strategic perspective where do we need to go and how would we model that out. So I went into effectively the SP&A role for the China snack food business at that time. 
and you move overseas for four, uh, well, with Pepsi, and uh, is, that, is that correct? Uh, you relocate there. Yes. So <laughs> I actually relocated to Dallas, um, but I call it the most expensive storage space I ever rented um, because I think I spent very, very little time in that apartment. I'm supposed to spend most of my time in Shanghai and China helping to figure out what we do with the Frito-Lay business out there. And as part of that, we kind of went through, launched Lay's Potato Chip as the first kind of true snack food potato chip in China. And based on the success of that initial launch, my role was to figure out how to build that business as quickly as possible. And I effectively ended my role in China when we decided to invest in the first Frito-Lay factory out there to really build a large line. Um, it didn't make sense for me to stick around because obviously building a factory takes a year plus and PepsiCo had asked me for a couple of other opportunities at that point, whether does it make sense for you to stay and wait until we finish the factory or is there a next great assignment which you've got for me but I want to take it. Well, okay, you've already emphasized you stay for 12 years. You stayed there that long for a good reason. You, you were getting the opportunities that interested you. Uh, you're not the first finance leader to have had this Pepsi experience. I think there's probably no one company uh, where I've heard CFOs give greater uh, uh, credit to than, than PepsiCo, and that might just be unique to this podcast. I want to uh, ask you, what exactly was Pepsi getting right? What was it when you look back and you compare notes with other peers and other large corporate environments, what set what was it that was setting Pepsi apart? I think there's a key element, and right, my comparison, obviously, I worked for Walmart afterwards and then L Brands, is the emphasis PepsiCo puts on the finance part of the planning and the business partnership versus the controller. Um, right, and then I have a very similar perspective. And um, as you said, I don't come out of a typical accounting school. I actually had, I think, one accounting course in my life. Um, so I understand the basics of accounting, but most of it has come through this experience of being out there. So the financial planning and the strategic piece is really what drives the PepsiCo finance team. Almost all the CFOs, either divisional, country, and so forth, do come from the planning side or the strategy business development side rather than from the accounting piece. So I think that's a resource that's become more and more in demand rather than the formal accounting treatment so that you can put together the financial statement. So I think being that business partner in a fast-moving business has become much, much more important to the CEOs of having a partner that they can talk to, somebody who has a very strong opinion because as a CFO, we have to defend the financial statements that we're putting together but that can also explain to people the differences that's happening in the business, how that's changing, and why what we've done in the past may not be the right thing going forward. And I think with the pace of business picking up, it's the planning side that's becoming more important than the accounting side as a business. Hi, it's Jack. I just wanted to mention at this point in the interview uh, we lost our connection with Andreas, and he did dial back, and you're about to hear the rest of our discussion. Uh, but there is something of a crackling noise, and we want to apologize for that. It has something clearly to do with how we got reconnected. Again, we apologize, but we felt that you would agree that our discussion with Andreas was just too good not to post. And we're pleased to return to it now. Interesting. Again, to look back at that period, we're talking about 1996 when you first joined them to 2008. Um, and this notion of finance being a partner with the business is something, of course, we've been hearing for 20 years, but obviously longer. And what I want to ask you as an outside observer myself, uh, one of the first people to begin uh, really uh, championing this notion in my mind uh, one of the companies and one of the personalities involved, Jack Welch at um, uh, GE, of course, there was a special movement at General Electric in the 90s 
to have uh, you know finance begin partnering with the business. And uh, clearly, there are many large uh, corporations headed down the same path. I'm wondering if you. I'm wondering if there was a sense that you were doing something rather innovative at Pepsi, or was this movement already in full swing when you arrived, or what were the circumstances? Yeah, when I joined PepsiCo, I think it was already well down the path of focusing the finance leadership on business partnerships. Um, right, As I mentioned, Indra Nui was on board already. Um, when I joined the team, I don't even remember how many of us came from CG So really uh, strong technically, but mainly focused on corporate strategy and development, right? The corporate development group that I was part of was a very large group. I came with people with some industry experience, but a lot of consulting experience. And that group was always seen as an impeder group for both the finance team and the technical administrative team and the people in innovation. So it's definitely been there at PepsiCo for a very long time, and it definitely did not start in the early 90s. I think it must have started about 10 years earlier to really have that perspective on how do we drive the business and what are the decisions that we need to make with the business. Um, right, it's The accounting side is still very important, right? I'm not the most fortunate in front of that company, um, but figuring out how to reinterpret what a lot of people now say is some of the gap numbers don't always work for management P&Ls. So how do we look at those P&Ls like this and how do we drive company behavior that gets us to the right answer? And then we'll report the numbers as we need to report it according to the quarter. Um, so I think that slight discrepancy that started with this announcement came with my focus on management performance and very much financial management performance led PepsiCo into this position that we want to follow what the strategic directors are, and we need somebody who understands both the accounting and the finance team from their own perspective to let us know how we're doing. Okay. One, one last um, anecdote about Pepsi I wanted to run by you. Uh, in the past, uh, uh, another finance leader who we've had on uh, explaining his Pepsi background, when I zeroed in on him and I said, you know, what is it that set Pepsi apart? The anecdote he shared is he said that one morning one of his managers, uh, and again he came in at a more junior position, I believe, than, than you did perhaps, pointed out to him that his communications or writing skills uh, might need a little help. And he said within the hour he had an email with a scheduling um, scheduling him for communication class. That, do you think that reflects the Pepsi you knew? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I don't think I ever had a single finance course at PepsiCo in terms of getting up to speed. Um, I think their perspective was, right, you spend 70% of your time on your job learning that way. About 30% would be internal training on other things, and it was very heavily around communication, uh, diversity in the objectives that we wanted to achieve, how to work better. Um, and then a little bit of external education that you may go through to try and push your performance forward, um, right? And my external education is around purchasing changes and things like that. So it really focused the finance education for the finance team on experience and what you need and how to get through that through your day-to-day -day job um, versus kind of things that were helpful to your job, you would get out of doing that. You become, you leave Pepsi, and you step into the role of, uh, is it, if I'm correct, at Walmart as CFO Asia. Is that correct? That's right, yes. Now, uh, again, are you, uh, you're not based in Asia, though. Is that correct? No, I was based in Hong Kong. Ah, okay. So you, you do uh, get both, uh, you, you relocate at some point in time. You weren't in Dallas, as you uh, yeah, so explained to us. Yeah, I moved from Dallas to several places and ended up in Hong Kong with PepsiCo. Uh, I had a couple of roles there first for an Asia role and then for one in China, but that was my last full-time role. What's, what's interesting is your, your next move, perhaps, at Walmart, which is to become CFO of e-commerce, which, as we know, this is the – 
well, I was going to call it the third rail. What would be the appropriate one for this giant retailer that has, you know, obviously made e-commerce a priority as it's feeling the pinch from Amazon? Um, there was probably no, uh, you know, one of the most written about pieces of the Walmart business during that time, I would say. Um, would you, uh, am I characterizing that correctly? Um, I wouldn't. Maybe not the third reel, but let's just say one of the most watched pieces of the business for Walmart, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So, right, I definitely wouldn't call it the third rail. <laughs> um, but it was an interesting place to be for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, some of them on the finance side and some of them on the e-commerce side. Um, right, Walmart had recognized that Amazon wasn't going to go away. Um, right, if you've read the book about Amazon, if you've ever seen the store, there was a lot of discussions that happened between Walmart and Amazon earlier on. But Amazon was recognized as strategically one of the competitors that we needed to be targeting. Um, I joined that business for a couple of reasons. One was I had sold my bonds. That was about the only way to ever get me back to the U.S. And while at PepsiCo, I had actually spent two years in the e-commerce business when we were running that time. Got one wave of around 2,000 businesses and all of the initial cash was was in Amazon. Um, So it made some sense. And one of the reasons is actually my profile is kind of maxes out on the ability to take risks and build companies on top of that. So for a company that is relatively conservative, because you've got a huge store base to think about, moving that is, as people like to describe it, is like a super tanker. It doesn't respond to immediate kind of changes. It takes a while to kind of build change with the right team. And joining that business and in California on the e-commerce side really was meant to build a different business. We had very, very few people who came over from PepsiCo to that company. Most of the team in California was either hired from other e-commerce businesses or from outside of PepsiCo and brought on board. Um, We were allowed to do things certainly slightly different. Um, We didn't, for effect, have slightly different compensation policies and other things that separated us a bit from what we were doing in PepsiCo. Um, But we also had a license from Amazon. Um, And I remember one of the discussions I had with Mike Dukes, who was CEO at that point, towards the end, I think it was around his resignation and he kind of walked through with it. He and I had a discussion around what we didn't do versus we should have done. We just didn't take bigger risks. Um, Or as he put it, we didn't fail anyone. Um, Right. The luxury of working in a company like Walmart is you can fail. And as one of my bosses put it, it's when we do an acquisition for a few hundred million dollars, his comment was, I've lost more money buying turtles than Christmas today. Right. It's the scale of Walmart is just so large that you can really experiment with things and figure out how things might work. So that was one of the enticements for people to come over is to say, we're effectively starting up a new e-commerce business here with one of the biggest funds in terms of money behind us to fund this and build it out and make it grow. So a great place to go work, um, but the goal was to figure out how to be competitive in the long run with our competitors that were out there and figuring out where do we fight against them and where do we try to avoid it because they may have greater abilities than we were trying to fight against them. So at Walmart, the challenge was that the executives didn't want to take risks. They didn't want to, uh, they were afraid of failure. No, actually it was different. They wanted us to fail bigger in some ways um, because the gap was too large. So we needed to find ways to really move the needle and by marginally improving the equivalent of that. Um, We actually had a couple of proposals that would have been very big and very risky. Um, For several reasons, we didn't go through with them. So in that sense, we did propose a couple of things that were very risky um, but didn't move forward with them. Um, But the other piece that we really had to educate the team on was how e-commerce works different and what that means for the people that are actually in the e-commerce business. Most of the team that worked for us in San California didn't really want to move to PepsiCo, didn't want to be part of the core team of Walmart. So the 
risk there wasn't seen as extreme. A lot of people work in the startup environment in California, and they're used to failing and failing until they find the right company to lead with. So I think leaving the e-commerce business out to California actually provided the right environment for Walmart to let people fail. Um, there's very few people left from the team that I joined about nine years ago. Um, so most of us have moved on, and none of us have moved on to a bigger job with the client. So we were very happy to go take that experience to a different location and a different company. So we didn't necessarily look at risk or failing the same way somebody does who's got 20 years invested in the company. So that really allowed me to take some risks that the kind of people who have a history to defend wouldn't necessarily be willing to look at. So from that perspective, I think Walmart did a great thing with leaving that business out there so that we could experiment and see what worked and see what didn't work. Well, I just want to underscore again what looks to me like a, a pretty bold and um, adventurous uh, career chapter. Again, you're, you're CFO of China Beverages at PepsiCo. You switch to C, uh, CFO Asia Walmart, and you come back to the U.S. because you've been given this opportunity to be uh, the finance leader of the e-commerce business based in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and you jump into this role. So we see CFOs who are able to change industries. You change industries, but you also get this specialization in e-commerce, which maybe you had at PepsiCo, but here you're, it's you're building it. You're, you're really uh, a big part of it. Have I overstated that or characterized it wrong, or how would you correct me? No, it's, it's true. Um, I've had that discussion that I come in with the, the breadth of experience that I have, um, right, as a consultant, you're used to being thrown into a business that you don't understand when you start because it's a completely different big company, different categories, you're dealing with different segments. So getting up to speed wasn't that much of a challenge for me. Um, it was really starting to question what we were doing and why we were doing things that then led kind of to the bigger discussions later on. Um, right, so a, a, a simple thing is, think of retail it's very much a build you build it and they will come which is why people talk about real estate real estate real estate means retail if you don't put your store in the right location you're kind of dead out of the water um, versus an e-commerce it's a very different play it's almost all variable so you have a very different P&L structure that you've got to accept you've got to understand that things don't happen until the customer actually buys something so a you need to get them to buy something and then you need to execute on versus in a store environment, almost everything happens before you buy something. So how does that change the P&L? What are the things you have to look at? By not being a retailer, kind of with a 20-year retail history, I actually could approach the P&L and say, look, we've got to do things very differently in e-commerce, and we can't behave the same way we do in our regular business. It just doesn't lead to the right solutions. So you've got to trust us that we know what we're doing here and we're going to do it differently next week. So the next transition is interesting for a different reason in my mind. Uh, you join L Brands, which for those of us who might not be familiar is the, uh, I guess, the holding or the parent company to Victoria's Secret and um, some very well-known brands. It's a big, big company. Um, L Brands, however, you are head of e-commerce international or international L brands e-commerce head. It doesn't seem like you're a finance, you're not tied to finance necessarily. It's a broader role. That's right. So um, I got. Any hesitation in your um, mind to sort of. None at all. It's, I was initially contacted to for a finance job at L brands. Um, we started the discussion that there is a few jobs that actually make sense for me. And I told them is I didn't want the finance job because it looked a little bit like I've been there, done that. So I said is the international e-commerce, you've got a huge opportunity. I have obviously lots and lots of experience in being based in Latin America, being based in Asia, being European, uh, a look and feel for those markets and would 
Walmart e-commerce experience, um, very good connections in the e-commerce world to figure out these multiple methods of shipping. So I wanted to gain something from the role. So taking on a more general management position made a lot more sense for me from a career development perspective than taking on a full-time business. And the business we built with Albrand was back in China. We, the one focus I had for two years was really building the e-commerce business in China. And with my eight years of being on the ground in Hong Kong and Shanghai, um, the experience with Walmart of building an e-commerce business in China was just a perfect fit with what Albrand was doing. So I pushed for the general management role rather than the e-commerce role. Interesting. And are you uh, okay? In this job, for what it's worth, uh, you were in the Bay Area. I think this this role was in New York. Is that correct? That's right. Because interestingly, uh, unlike some finance leaders with this type of background, where you've got immersed in e-commerce, um, you could have gone the the startup route. I'm sure there were plenty of opportunities. I don't think they interested you though. Uh, as you were in that Bay Area, as you were in that ecosystem of venture capital and all these different opportunities, it's pretty clear, it, it seems to me, that you could have pursued uh, the uh, storybook startup uh, CEO or slash CFO role if you wanted to. Not for you, or how, d how did you look at the world? Um, if I had started talking to some companies on the startup side, um, the challenge was always a fit question from their perspective, right? Is if you come from a Fortune 50, can you work in a startup environment, um, right? And for Better Choice Company, obviously, we are very close to a startup environment here. Um, but I think what the question really is, is if it's a true right, software virtual product type startup with a very small group of people, do you need somebody who knows or was on the finance floor publicly traded company, who knows how to manage people properly, negotiating between the accountants, the auditors, the SEC, the big management team, right? A lot of those skills don't necessarily work for a startup company like ours. They work for a company that's thinking of going through an IPO process um, that's potentially just gone public. Um, but the very kind of early startup, right, I personally fit in, but my experience doesn't necessarily say that that's the best fit uh, because of the skill set that's required. Um, and I think, for example, Better Choice is a better fit in that sense because even though we are a relatively young company, four years of history of selling pet food, um, with the financial deals that we've done, these are all public company deals that we're going to have to go through. So the experience of being both public company as well as on the entrepreneurial side of big company is actually a very good fit for us. So tell us more, really. What better choice company, and again, uh, I mentioned up front, it's a pet health and wellness portfolio company. I characterized it as that. What exactly was the opportunity, again, after this, uh, these marquee brands and you're getting deeper into e-commerce, so clearly you've gleaned a good number of insights over the, the types of business models that operate there over the years. What is it about Better Choice that obviously you saw something? You leave L Brands where you have that, that broader opportunity. What is it that's bringing you to Best Choice now? I actually left L Brands a year and a half ago. I've been out on my own as a consultant. Um, so that was an exciting business because obviously I was in control of my own calendar and I had my own productivity. Um, what attracted me to Better Choice is really a whole bunch of factors. Um, one is I need to have an alignment with the product of what's the mission of the company, where are they trying to go, and given healthier pet food or some of the healthier ingredients that they have in some of their more food, and now the expansion into CBD, it's an exciting opportunity to figure out what this space will look like. And even though I worked in very large companies before, Walmart and PepsiCo, I was always kind of at the smaller entrepreneurial piece. So this takes what I've done in the 
expertise from a pure commercial development perspective. The company is public, and we are looking to see how we can continue to finance the company to actively engage in the merger that's been proposed together. So there's a lot of kind of financial challenges that need to be solved in a very current environment, and there isn't a finance team on board yet to make sure that we can continue to build that. So this gives me the full leeway to build the finance team that I am looking for and that I think will be most effective in a seven year plan. So it really allows me to continue to kind of have a leadership position in the company, um, having grown the company CFO, to build a finance team the way I want it. I don't want to inherit more than a couple of people and to work in a business where we can shape the direction of the business because it's really being just evolved and based on the founder that was less than a year ago and I'm ready to as you consider that team and some of the hires that need to be made, I'm curious where, given your wealth of experience, where you believe that talent might reside today. And um, I suspect you don't think, okay, I, I, I want to focus on it, large enterprise or small company. I doubt that. What are the characteristics of the individuals you're looking for? regularly check in with them and also through external check-ins with them. So normally it would be a weekly update meeting where I would say, hey, I need a little bit of help on where can I help you? Or I would just stop by and say, hey, I'm working on this problem. I know I've asked you to work on something similar. What do you have in mind? So the regular meetings would give me a comfort level around what what is ahead. And the irregular meetings where I would just pop into their desk and ask them a question would really tell me whether that's going to so that's the type of person I'm looking for. Um, on the planning side, I can find that relatively straightforward with people who are similar to me in terms of technical knowledge. Um, so I know there's a lot of them with a spectacle. I'm personally skeptical at this point, um, but finding that right person. On the controller side, it's a little bit more difficult um, because controllers are used to working right on a regular cadence in terms of closing reporting and whatever projects they need to do here. Um, but I've had plenty of controllers in my life that I've worked with that I know how they work, and I'm now leveraging that network to figure out who they would recommend to me to bring into a company where they'd be comfortable with the startup feel, even though it's When we come back, CFO Andrea Schulmeyer shares a finance strategic moment after this. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers at every opportunity has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for five years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com slash middle market. Andreas, for our next question, um, we purposely give our guests uh, a wide opening uh, when we ask for a finance strategic moment. And by wide opening, I mean any time during the course of your career that you, there was a moment of strategic insight that you experienced that allowed you to take action, uh, whether it was a risk that was avoided or an opportunity pursued. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? 
Yeah, and it's kind of a two-part. Something I learned at PepsiCo and then applied at Walmart. Um, I was down in Brazil, and we had to rebuild the business because the financial crisis effectively devalued the currency to 50% of trade value. So we had to relook the P&L, make sure the planning works, the business kind of completely restructured. Every month we closed the books, our financial model would drop. So we had to completely rebuild the model, change the assumptions that we had with our planning models, would actually forecast where we were going to go in one month. So it really told me is at some point you have to look at each of the pieces of the P&L that builds your whole financial model and say what's important, what do we throw out, how do we approximate where we want to end up at the end of the month without making it too complex and still getting good results that we can when I was at Walmart in the e-commerce business, um, we had a big question around what do you have on the books as assets? And one of our biggest assets in the e-commerce business was the tax books. Um, Walmart is very used to counting nuts and bolts and saying, is okay, tell me which pieces of software you have, what's the life of that piece of software, how much did it cost to build that, and how did you put that together? And if you know engineers in Silicon Valley, they will never give you how many hours they worked on which project. So it was impossible to build that level of detail on how much was the software actually on the books for, piece by piece. But what I could give them was, here's the overall picture. We build three or four different types of software. Some of it has a life of less than a year. Some of it has a life of two to three years. Some three to five, and some longer term life. So Will you let us build the software that we need to, and we just report it that way, which gives you, according to the accounting rules, a good representation of our assets as they are on the books for us. But if you ask us to track each piece individually, I'm going to lose a bunch of engineers, and I'm going to walk out the door. So you've got to make a choice as the controller chief. Is you write how tight do you want those controls? What are you willing to live with so that you can build a software that we need to and you get the accounts that we agree meets the requirements that the GAP has and measure the performance of the software. So I pushed the controller chief really hard to feel comfortable with a prospect of saying, yeah, we're just going to comfort these buckets rather than have him choose them by hand and really allowing us to focus on building the technology rather than figuring out how we're going to I think that was a key piece in letting the engineers do their work and become more competitive in what we needed to be, rather than putting the finances ahead of the business. <laughs> I love it. It's it's also a sort of an, a return to your early years uh, at that intersection of uh, engineering and finance. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and inform future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you today about finance and business? Uh, it's really the idea of building a new finance team for a public company. Um, we've got so many things on the agenda right now of things we need to do to publicly report as required, to build a business in a segment that didn't really exist before, and to also look at how do we expand our channels and our product offerings for customers. So it's the too many things on the plate and figuring out how to prioritize and how to put the pieces together so that we can manage through this process. So it's almost the opposite of the regular kind of 30-day reporting cycle that we have where we really got to put the whole pieces together and figure out how to make the company work and support that company. So again, it's more of a build than a change, and I think that's what's most exciting for us as a future company. When it when it comes to building, would it surprise us how you're prioritizing uh, as far as which pieces you want to put in place first or which pieces that might belong to a traditional finance team you don't think yeah. um, are as necessary? I, I think there's always that pressure between what's urgent and what's important. Um, it's, I don't have a lot of leeway, and nobody has a lot of leeway around required filings that we have to do as a public company. So getting those done is always a priority. 
but strategically that's not going to drive the direction of the company. So figuring out how to support the company with resources that we're at very minimal of right now by meeting their requirements is one of the biggest challenges. So that really leads to finding the right people, recruiting the right people, um, which I don't think our company is good at attempting to do, is the number one priority for me right now because we can't continue to deliver against everyone that's needed with the current team. The team that you're going to put in place, do you think it's any different from a team you might have built 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Um, yes, uh, partially because I know myself better and I know what I can do and what I can't do. Um, and right as, as I had mentioned, is I don't come from the accounting side. So hiring that top-notch controller that really allows me to focus on the strategic direction rather than necessarily the day-to-day -day operations is a key piece. Um, I also want somebody on the planning side that isn't necessarily rolling numbers forward, but has more of a business development mindset. So it's what segments are we getting into? What happens as we switch from an online-only distribution to a retail customer distribution? How do you build out a model for a business where none of the pieces are defined? So it goes back to your question about startups and it feeling like that. So I need people who are very comfortable with uncertainty because we just don't have any certainty to go by because we haven't built the business in that way. Okay. Now, do you wish, uh, I guess this would go back to your years at Pepsi, the first time you had the CFO title, the first time you were perhaps signing off on a P&L for one of their geographies or businesses. What do you wish someone had told you the first time you put your <laughs> signature uh, across those numbers, um, below those numbers. What is it that you wish someone had told you at the start of your finance leadership career when you were taking on all the responsibilities at that point? Uh, I think there is always going to be that uncertainty of did I miss anything? Um, and I think that's a healthy level of anxiety to have. Um, still say is, okay, do I feel comfortable with signing this? Does it meet all the regulatory requirements of a public statement, whether it's a rollout or at the highest level? Um, right, having had discussions with the SEC on things like how do you report a small segment that's not a segment of e-commerce to actually Walmart? What are they looking for? What do they want the financial statement to say? Is They're never going to be perfect. Fundamentally, once you become a larger company, there's always going to be little pieces here and there that you cannot actually touch anymore. So figuring out what's material, what's not material, how do you dive into asking the right questions, I think that's something that just builds up with experience. And that comfort level of eventually saying, yeah, I really did miss a lot. Um, it, it just requires having done it and having kind of been in that seat. So it's initially, it's, it's daunting. Um, I remember in my technical days, we had an adjustment we needed to do that I thought was huge. I called the company CFO and they said, that's not your deal, right? It's, it's just that level of experience of having dealt with these things that makes you feel comfortable in moving forward and asking the right questions. Do you have a personal habit or routine you believe that's contributed to your success in some way? Um, yes. Every now and then, I need to find a way to completely kind of log off the thought process um, because otherwise you kind of get stuck in this maintenance loop. And getting engrossed in a video game that starts to really draw your attention in more and more to the tasks and to the game forces that separation. So every now and then, I just need to spend an hour or two on those video games um, so that I disconnect from everything that I had Just related to your, your video games, uh, what I is your latest guilty uh, pleasure? Oh, it's <laughs> I am actually years behind. Um, I would say the reason I play right now is Fallout 3. 
Uh, we're up to our final question, finally, uh, which is where we get to ask you, look forward. You already shared with us uh, you have some team building that has to go on, but over the next 12 months, what are those priorities that you have as a finance leader? Um, I think it's really three pieces. One, obviously, is to get all the pieces in place to do the regulatory reporting. The second is as we expand this business, we are going to have to figure out what the right metrics are for the business. Right now, TrueCred has two goals that sells online, so we have very traditional online metrics as a success factor. But as we move into bricks and mortar retail partners, we have to figure out what's the right way to look at our product. Um, is it sell through? Is it reverse margin for the customer? What are the key pieces that help us drive the partnership there? And then lastly is where do we want to take this company? It right now is very U.S. centric, um, but this category as well as the businesses we're going into are globally relevant. So does this give me an opportunity to help build a global business again, even though we are starting off and just in the U.S. So the excitement of a huge playing field for us is really what gets us going. Andrea Schollmeyer, thank you for joining us. CFO Thought Leader. Great. Thanks for having me. Thought Leader listeners, don't forget to visit CFOThoughtLeader.com and opt in to our weekly e-newsletter where we feature our latest episodes upon release. Just opt in. It's free. You'll never miss an episode again at cfothoughtleader.com.